0: You'll turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke 3, today we will be looking at verses 21 and 22 as we can continue our journey through the gospel of Luke. Our key words this morning for our worshipers in training are water, divine, and trinity. Now, every four to eight years, the world watches on as the United States inaugurates a new president. If you think about it, if you've ever seen it, it's full of fanfare, and it's unlike almost anything that happens in the world. Consider only a few events that go on and and some of the cost involved in that. There's generally a big parade. The last one involved over 13,000 people. Three million visitors from all over the country went to Washington, D.C. to witness the event live and in person. There's the oath of office and the the swearing-in ceremony and the actual speech from the new president. The last one, just that alone, cost $1.24 million dollars. And then, of course, they have to construct a platform and put chairs on the White House lawn for everyone to observe for three and a half million dollars. They hire police and secret service agents and military security for 15 million dollars. Leading up to and following the actual ceremony, there are ten different inaugural balls for about 45 million dollars. Even give money to the Smithsonian Institute, $700,000, so that they'll stay open longer to accommodate all of the, the large numbers of people that will be in town. The total of an inauguration topping just over $150 million. And of course, they get more and more and more elaborate as the years progress. Literally, there's nearly an entire month of events to inaugurate a new president, It doesn't take long after that until half the country doesn't like him anymore. (laughs) Now, There's nothing new or uniquely American about this either. Although most other nations that participate in such elaborate festivities for a new leader are dictators or or monarchies, Uh, men and women love to honor their king. And often they do so at seemingly unlimited expense. We want to exalt our leaders, to put them on a a pedestal and present them to the world and celebrate them to extreme excess. Sometimes you see when companies get a new CEO or when military units get a new commander or even sometimes when churches get a new pastor. There's a great deal of hype surrounding the event. And not all of this may be bad or sinful, but it is an interesting comparison As we look at these instances as compared to the inauguration of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, no parades, no parties, no speeches, no security or lights or stage construction or chair rentals for everyone to watch, it all seems quite backwards, doesn't it? The eternal king of the universe, the savior of the world, begins his ministry No fanfare, but in humble submission to humanity, becoming a man, putting on flesh, living a perfect life and dying a sinner's death. Now remember, as we've looked at the Gospel of Luke, Luke continuously points out the the humility of Christ in his humanity and the humility of those he has come to save. The interest of God was not for Christ to enter into the world of aristocrats, the social and political elite, but rather to enter the world in humility and in fragility, in humanity. The one king in all the world who has ever existed that deserves an inauguration that all inaugurations in the world combined could never come close to offering, instead made it his mission to empty himself. To take on the form of a servant, to be born in the likeness of men, and to offer himself as a sacrifice for many. It's a significant contrast, and and by no means would this have been lost on the Jewish and Gentile people of Luke's day. They were surrounded by a people who worshipped their emperors men who were often carried around on thrones by a multitude of of servants and paraded through the streets, and even some who didn't even feed themselves, but rather surrounded by a harem of women who would do it for them. It's no wonder so many were confused at the coming of Jesus and didn't understand him. He was nothing like what they'd seen before. He was nothing like what they expected their long-awaited Messiah to be. And so the text we're going to look at this morning in the Gospel of Luke marks the official beginning of Jesus' ministry as the Savior of the world. And it's signified by a divine confirmation from heaven. This is Jesus' humble inauguration. So let's read these two verses together. Chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke, verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, if you're familiar with the account of Jesus' baptism that's included in the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, you know that Luke's account is quite generic. It's very non-descriptive. So it's important for us to consider what the parallel gospel accounts have to say. So we're going to read each of those together, and then we'll put the pieces together. So let's look first at the gospel of Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now turn over to Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, each of these accounts gives us a fuller picture of Jesus' baptism. Now, John's account, the Gospel of John, will give us a snapshot of what happened the day after Jesus' baptism when he returned to the Jordan where John continued to baptize Jews who were repenting of their sins and trusting in the future work of the Messiah. So, let's look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So let's put all of this together and give a full explanation of what's transpired as we move into this inauguration of Jesus Remember, we saw several weeks ago, John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness in Judea. Which, as a side note, this is where we see God communicating with most of his prophets. It's most often in the wilderness, if you're wondering why John was there. This is where God spoke to his men who would deliver a divine prophetic word to the people. So John arrives on the scene and Matthew 3, 5 and 6 says, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their Sins. So he had all these people coming out to the Jordan River, and he's calling them to repent of their sins. He's telling them that their Jewishness is no confirmation of their salvation, that they need to repent and turn to Christ. And he baptizes them as an indication of their repentance. He, he announces the coming of the Messiah, and he tells the people, the kingdom of God is at hand. If you recall last week, John told the priests and the Levites who showed up to question him about what he was doing and whether or not he was the Messiah or Elijah, he very quickly changed the focus away from him and onto Christ, the one whom John said he was not even worthy to untie his sandal straps. And now Jesus travels from Nazareth, which was north of Jerusalem, down to the Jordan River in Judea, which is south of Jerusalem. And John one thirty one records the words of John the Baptist admitting that at first, John did not even recognize who Jesus was. Now this, this tells us something about Jesus, that of all, all the people around him, Jesus did not appear any different than any other man. There wasn't a glow about him. There was no halo over his head. He appeared just like every other Jewish man in the region. So Jesus comes to John the Baptist and he identifies himself. And immediately, what do we see John doing? He displays the very same humility that we saw from him last week. John is adamant about not baptizing Jesus, but rather Jesus baptizing him. But Jesus insists, saying, It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus is baptized by John. He's coming up out of the water, he was immersed. That's what Matthew and Mark both identify and all heaven breaks loose. The heavens open, the Spirit of God descends like a dove and rests upon Jesus, and the voice of the Father is heard from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And the next day, Jesus returns to the Jordan where John was baptizing, and John affirms the Messiahship of Christ when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a complete picture of what we look at in all the four gospel accounts together. And all of this comes to inaugurate the ministry of Jesus, to confirm his Messiahship and his divinity. Now, there are many different things that we can consider from just these two verses, but I want to focus on three specific areas this morning. First, I want to ask the question of the text. Why was Jesus baptized? Secondly, I want to highlight the main point of these verses being the divine confirmation of Jesus by the Father. And lastly, we will look at a clear indication of the Trinitarian nature of God and why it is significant at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. So, first, why was Jesus baptized? More specifically, since John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, For the forgiveness of sins, according to verse 3 of the same chapter, why was Jesus baptized? So let's be clear here. It's undeniable that in the text that baptism is only for those who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, what John was doing is meaningless. And now we know from the Bible that Jesus was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us Jesus knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15 very clearly says Jesus was without sin. So why the baptism? Because he has no sins to be forgiven. And this was essentially what John was saying when he initially countered Jesus in his interaction and he said, I need to be baptized by you. In other words, this doesn't make sense. In fact, John may have thought, this really discredits all that I have proclaimed and called these people to. The assumption is that Jesus being baptized makes baptism look like something else entirely, having nothing to do with sinners anymore, because Jesus was without sin. But that's not the case at all. We know it because Jesus' response to John in in Matthew 3.15, he says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So by no means was Jesus discrediting what John was doing in baptism, but in fact he's highlighting the importance of it. We know God commanded baptism John himself said he was sent by God to baptize with water in John 1.33. So Jesus is affirming the significance of baptism. And Jesus' statement to John is essentially, it is right for me to do everything that is right. That's what he means by that. It is right for me to do everything that is right. And if you think of what we affirm in baptism, it has a negative aspect, namely repenting of and turning from our sins, but it also has a very significant positive element as well, namely placing one's faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And and Jesus could affirm both of these things. He was resolved not to sin, but always to turn away from sin and he was always committed to trust the Father. These two things that are signified in baptism, Jesus did perfectly. So whatever God the Father commanded, Jesus would do to fulfill all righteousness, and we see this in other places, where Jesus did not have to participate in the sense that he was the fulfillment of the very thing that he was doing, but he did it anyway to fulfill all righteousness. For example, did Jesus take the Passover meal? Of course he did. Why? Why did he do it? Jesus is the true Passover, isn't he? So Jesus is the lamb who was slain that God would once and for all pass over the sins of his people. But Jesus participated year after year because he needed to fulfill all righteousness. And if Jesus had not fulfilled all righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21 would not be true for us. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, that, that part of the gospel, there's a part of the gospel in that one verse that is so often misunderstood or ignored altogether. It's Theologically, we call it the imputed righteousness of, of Christ, In other words, in this great exchange, my sin is placed upon Christ and he bears the, the wrath of God, the penalty that is due to me uh, in my place, on my behalf. We, we get that part. That's Sunday School 101 in the toddler class. But the part that we cannot forget, but most often do not articulate about the gospel... And really, this is the part that that drives us forward in our sanctification after we are saved. It is that his righteousness is placed upon us. And we are treated by the Father as he treats the Son. So Christ not only died for our sins, which is great and glorious... But he also granted to us his right standing before the Father, so we will be counted blameless on the day of judgment. This is one of the greatest doctrines in all the Bible, because it means that God the Father is pleased with me. He delights in me as his son. Even though I sin against him each and every day. In Philippians 3.9, the Apostle Paul writes that he is found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So that means I don't have to work to earn God's favor. I don't have to do a bunch of stuff in order for God to smile upon me and delight in me as his son. Because Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. We don't have to depend on our own deeds. We need to depend on Christ. We can rest in the complete and sufficient work of Christ as our Savior who did everything that we are commanded to do and yet he did it perfectly and he did it on our behalf. That's what Jesus' baptism is about. And it's great news. It is great news. Secondly, We see in this text the divine confirmation of Jesus by the Father. and This is the main focus of verses 21 and 22. In the Greek, this becomes a bit more clear. The statement of the Father is the main clause, and everything else Luke mentions is a subordinate clause. So what's implied is that this is of most importance in the statement. This is the divine confirmation of Jesus as the Messiah. It is the testimony of the Father to the Son. It is a word from heaven. It is the anointing of the Holy Spirit from heaven, indicating that Jesus is, in fact, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He is the one promised by the angel Gabriel when he announced that Mary would have a child who would be the son of the most high he is the one who was affirmed by the angels when they said to the shepherds glory to God in the highest for today was born a savior Christ Jesus the Lord so as Jesus was lifted from the wa- from the waters we read that the heavens were open. This in itself, the heavens opening, is very significant. Whenever we read of the heavens being opened in the Bible, one of two things, sometimes both things are happening. One is that God is appearing in some way, either through visions, we read in Ezekiel 1.1. Angels, we see in John 1.51. We see the heavens being opened when Stephen is martyred in Acts seven says the heavens were open and he sees the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. Revelation 19.11, the heavens are open and John writes that he sees a white horse and the rider of that white horse is called Faithful and True. So one thing we see in the scriptures, when the heavens are open, God is revealing himself in some very significant way, uh, physically, visually. The other instances in the Bible of the heavens opening are an indication that God is speaking, just as we see here at Jesus' baptism. And in fact, we see each of these things happening. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. In other words, God appears and then God speaks. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well Please. So we have the visual or the physical, the heavens opening, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and we have the verbal, God speaks. And we can safely assume that the multitudes at the Jordan who were present at that time of Jesus' baptism also saw this happening because John indicates in the Gospel of John that John the Baptist saw everything as it happened, So, three things happening here. Perhaps they're obvious in terms of what the Father is revealing about the Son in His words. That He is my Son. In Him, I am well pleased. First, God is pointing to the kingship of Jesus. Remember, chapter 1, verse 35. Mary was informed that Jesus would be called the Son of God. And as the Son of God, He was supernatural. He was fully divine. And while Luke has focused very intently on emphasizing the humanity of Jesus, he's also been very unmistakable in identifying His divinity. In Luke chapter 9, we're going to see where the Father says that Jesus is His Son and all that Jesus says is to be obeyed. In other words, when He speaks, it is on my behalf. And in chapter 10, verse 22, we read, All things have been handed over to me, this is the words of Jesus, by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus has a very unique, supernatural relationship to the Father. And the words of the Father, you are my beloved Son, are an allusion to the the Messianic Psalm, Psalm chapter 2, which really highlights the point all the more. This is Psalm 2. The Lord said to me, you are my Son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your procession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this is clearly a, an emphasis on the kingly reign of Jesus given to the father from heaven. Secondly, the Father is revealing the perfection of Jesus. He says that he is pleased with everything about him. This is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah writes the words of the Lord, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. So the father is pleased with his son, his humble birth, his 30 years of perfection up to this point. Jesus has not done one single deed or had one single thought or said one single word that has displeased the father. For 30 years, his inner devotional life has transcended that of every man who has ever lived. Unequal prayer and meditation and union and communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit as he grew in his comprehension of who he was and what he was to do. So through his infancy, his childhood, his, his teenage year, and now into manhood, Jesus grew from grace to grace, from holiness to holiness in subjection to and full of love for the Father without a single stain of sin upon him. He was perfectly righteous in every regard. This was most certainly well pleasing to the Father. And the third thing we see the Father doing is anointing and appointing Jesus for ministry. This is the commissioning, if you will, of Jesus by the Father for his ministry. It becomes clear in verse 23, which we'll look at next week, which is it's stated that Jesus' ministry has begun. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27, and chapter 10, verses 38, the Scriptures point to Jesus' anointing by the Father. But there's something interesting in the text that, that really points to what kind of ministry it's going to be. We see it all when we start to ask questions of the text, and I encourage you to do this as you read the Bible. Notice verse 22. It says that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. That's very interesting. Why? We have to ask, why did the Holy Spirit descend like a dove? What does that indicate? Why reference to a dove? This is an indication of what Jesus' earthly ministry is going to be. In other words, the power that Jesus is anointed with by the Father in his commissioning to ministry is a certain kind of power. There's a sort of paradox here. Because we're talking power, but what are doves most commonly associated with? Peace, right? So the power of the ministry of Jesus will be led by the spirit of peace. It's in the text. Two things. The only instance we see in the Gospels of Jesus ever speaking of a dove is very telling in this regard. Matthew ten sixteen. Jesus tells the disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and what? Innocent as doves. So there's no question in Jesus' mind what a dove is a symbol of, right? It's purity and meekness and innocence. It was also the kind of bird that we looked at a few weeks ago that a poor Jew could offer as a sacrifice because they did not have the money to buy an animal for the altar. That says something. Now, where else do we get a picture of what the Father is sending Jesus to do in his ministry? Again, as we looked at previously, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. God the Father proclaims that he has put his spirit upon his servant, who is Jesus. And he says he will bring justice to the nations. And we looked at that last week. John makes that very clear. Jesus has the winnowing fork. He will separate the wheat from the chaff. But... Isaiah also paints another picture right alongside this just, wrath-filled judge. Sandwiched between two statements referencing the justice in the hand of Jesus, God says he will not cry aloud or lift his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. So he has the power to bring justice to the nations. But he will not use his power to break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning wick. He will be tender and gentle for those who are weak and failing. He will be dove-like. Now, don't assume that means that he won't judge. That's very clear in the text that he will. But for this time, during his ministry, Jesus is anointed for a ministry of dove-like concern for the people he loves and serves. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am meek and lowly. These are the words of Jesus. He has come to the sick of the world, not those who presume to be well, He is after the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks to the weak and the faint-hearted and the suffering. And he comes to strengthen them and to fan their flame. So in all, the Father is confirming that Jesus is his Son. He confirms his kingship, his perfection in righteousness and his call to dove-like ministry to those he came to save. He has the full blessing and the full approval of the Father and is commissioned to begin his journey to Calvary. Third and lastly, what we see in this text is the Trinitarian nature of God. We see all three members of the Trinity present in this passage. Now, there's an ancient heresy called Sibelianism, which has been repackaged, is now mostly called modalism. It's a rejection of the Trinitarian nature of God. And there are some very popular false teachers who hold to the heresy of modalism. Perhaps most popular is a televangelist from Texas named T.D. Jakes. Oneness, Pentecostal, or holiness movements are all uh, false teachers of this heresy of modalism. The teaching of modalism is that God is not one God in three persons, but rather is one God who reveals himself in three different manifestations. In other words, when God is the Father, he is not simultaneously the Son and the Holy Spirit. Likewise, when he is the Son, he is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. So if you're thinking ahead a little bit, that means that when Jesus was fulfilling his earthly ministry, who was in heaven? No one. Apparently. I think this passage alone in the Scriptures, there are countless passages, but this alone is enough to hang modalism out to dry. It is clearly Trinitarian in nature. And it's also a good passage to turn to with Jehovah's Witnesses who think that the Holy Spirit is simply some sort of aura or force, but not a spirit being. But the picture here that we see is very beautiful. It's full of hope. It's full of reassurance. Now if we consider that God is God and there is only one God, the Father says, I am well pleased. We must also conclude that the Son and the Holy Spirit are likewise pleased. So at the, at the occasion of the baptism of Jesus, there's divine pleasure among the members of the Trinity and all that has and all that will transpire. The second person of the Godhead comes out of the water, and he was praying The third person descends in bodily form like a dove upon him. And the first person made the glorious statement in regards to his pleasure of the Son. So the Holy Trinity rejoices together at the Jordan as they commemorated and celebrated the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. And there's something wonderfully helpful and comforting in this for all of us. Here we see all the members of the Trinity actively involved in the official start of Jesus' ministry. It is a display of the power of God at work in His Trinitarian nature to do what is necessary for the redemption of mankind. In other words, we see the unity of the Trinity working for the good of man, for our good. And all three persons are pleased in this moment because they know what is to come. They know that final, ultimate, eternal salvation for the souls of men lies ahead. All three persons are equally concerned with the redemption of souls. Likewise, the Bible shows us in many instances that all three persons are also involved in our redemption. The Father elects a people unto salvation, Gives them to the Son. The Son has died on their behalf and raised from the dead, bearing the penalty of our sins, granting us a righteousness not of our own so we can have a right standing before the Father. And as we looked at last week, the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart and we're able to respond to the call of the gospel and repentance and faith. Indwelling the believer, working in us for our perseverance and our sanctification. So we see the work of the Trinitarian nature of God in our regeneration, in our salvation. And so a man or a woman, maybe it's you, a man or a woman may feel completely, utterly helpless and beyond understanding and beyond forgiveness and beyond the grace of God. If you think that, I want to tell you you're wrong. The gospel is the good news of a divinely given righteousness that we cannot earn and we do not deserve. It is made available to us by the grace of God through faith apart from anything that we can say or anything we can do. Our Trinitarian God delights in saving the so-called unsavables of the world. And that is great news for sinners like us. We're broken. We're we're needy. And at the end of it all, we have to admit that we are completely helpless. But there's hope and strength and grace upon grace upon grace in the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who was commissioned to come and die on our behalf. God will judge. He will. But God is patient. And the call is to repent of our sin, to turn from our sins, to look to Christ. Not trying to clean ourselves up. We can't. There's nothing I can do to make myself acceptable before the Father, but to lean in on Christ, to trust in Christ, who's died on our behalf, who's granted us a righteousness, not of our own, that we can have a right standing before the Father, that He will look on us with delight. He will love us. He will cherish us as his sons and daughters. And he will care for us all the days of our life unto eternity. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending Christ into this world in humility, in humanity, to do what we are unable to do, to grant us what we are unable to earn. Thank you for the Holy Spirit upon us, who regenerates us and indwells us, has sealed us for eternity, who prays for us, who brings conviction of sin to us, who illumines the Word for us, that as we walk, we can walk in obedience and conviction of our sin, that we might repent and continue to walk in peace with you. This is a great work by your hand, and we thank you. We thank you that Christ, submitted to your will, that he was commissioned for a task, that his ministry was inaugurated and that he fulfilled it perfectly, that today, 2,000 years later, we can gather together and rejoice with gladness and joy in Christ our Savior. Lord, thank you. Lord, I pray for those in our midst today who do not know Christ, who do not love Christ, who have rejected Christ, for those who knowingly reject Christ and for those who are living a life of self-righteousness and may not even discern that they are not in Christ. I pray for them, Lord, that you would grant them new life in Jesus, that you would bury their old self to death and bring them to life, new life in Christ, that they would be born again in true salvation. Lord, please do that for your sake, for your glory that there would be more worshipers on the earth to exalt the name of Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for worship. We delight in you all the more. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.